Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. Before I introduce my guest, Hadley Freeman, a few quick items of business. I'll try to make them quick. The first is that my other podcast, A Special Place in Hell, which I do with Sarah Hader, has in the last few weeks come back from hiatus. You can find us everywhere you found us before. In other words, wherever you get your podcasts. But we are now also recording on video. And in fact, we have a YouTube channel, which is called A Special Place in Hell. This changes nothing about the podcast itself, and I suspect most people will continue to listen to it the old way. But since apparently no one under the age of 30 consumes anything that is not on YouTube or TikTok, we are on YouTube. We're not an interview show, as you know, but we're going to be doing more interviews, maybe one a month or so. And we've had some pretty spicy ones lately. And we always do bonus content every week for paying subscribers. So if you want to get in on that, go to our Substack, aspecialplace.substack.com, or the YouTube channel, or just your regular podcast app, or just type our names into Google and you'll probably find it. Okay. uh, The second thing, and I'll make this quick, is that the next Unspeakeasy retreat is next week. It's May 8th through 11th in Minneapolis. The overnight spots are full, but we are offering a daytime-only option on May 9th and 10th, since the venue is only about 20 minutes from downtown Minneapolis. And even though we're really down to the wire, I was debating if I should even mention this. If you are interested, you can go to the unspeakeasy.com and inquire. We, We might be able to squeeze a few more people in. Otherwise, we have a retreat coming up in Austin, Texas, June 24th and 25th. That is a weekend daytime only retreat and a super fancy posh overnight retreat in the Poconos in Pennsylvania next fall, October 23rd through 26th. Again, that's all at theunspeakeasy.com where you can also join our online community, which is really fun and amazing and much more affordable than the retreats. And if you are a man and you want to get in on the Unspeakeasy, we are trying to grow this so that we can offer bigger events that are co-ed. So the best thing you can do if you're a guy and you want to do this is support the women's community as it is now so we can grow and offer things for you. Okay. My guest, Hadley Freeman, is a columnist for the Sunday Times of London. Formerly, she was at The Guardian. And she's the author of a new book about what in some ways feels like an old or at least not in our faces all the time topic. And that is anorexia. Her book is Good Girls, A Story and Study of Anorexia. And it's part memoir of her own battle with severe anorexia as a teenager and part reported book about the causes, treatments, social factors, and lasting effects of the illness. It also comes with the news that rates of anorexia rose sharply during and after the pandemic. So it's really much more relevant than we might think. In this conversation, Hadley talks about how at age 14, she stopped eating almost completely, very suddenly, and landed in a hospital within months. Now, we often hear about how anorexia isn't as much about being thin as it is about having control. But Hadley describes her own compulsion as a competitive desire to look ill. She was actually hospitalized eight or nine times within about a three-year period. And she admits that the ultimate success, actually, was death itself in her mind, her twisted logic at the time. 
This is obviously a huge subject and we don't cover all of it here, but we do touch on a lot, including the intersection between anorexia and gender dysphoria, such as it is. And that includes my theory that social media star Dylan Mulvaney is less a gender influencer than an anorexia exhibitionist. And if that's not unspeakable enough, Hadley stays overtime to talk about my favorite third rail, Woody Allen, whom she's interviewed and written about. We also talk about a recent interview she did with Judy Bloom, whose expression of support for J.K. Rowling led to, well, you can imagine. So to hear that part, become a paying subscriber at megandom.substack.com. Otherwise, here is my conversation with Hadley Freeman. Hadley Freeman, welcome to The Unspeakable. Oh, thank you, Megan. I'm so, so thrilled to be here. I followed your work as a cultural critic for a long time. And when I saw that you'd written a book about anorexia, I was really intrigued. I was a teenager in the 1980s when anorexia was pretty much the main player when it Mm -hmm. came to expressions of trauma and anxiety for teenage girls. Mm -hmm. Cutting was not yet a thing, really. And I admit that I'm guilty of assuming that anorexia was on its way out. Mm. Um, I feel like we tend not to hear about it as much these days, but you point out that it's actually rising again. And so before you tell your story, can you just tell us what we know about current rates of anorexia? Well, we know that um, hospital referrals certainly went up uh, in recent years, particularly during the pandemic, which is really not a surprise because anorexia is an expression of an of an unhappy emotion. And one of those unhappy emotions is it can often be anxiety. And also a feeling for the sufferer that the world is big and out of control. And this is a way to sort of make the world smaller anorexia. And so I think a lot of us felt that way during the pandemic when the world felt quite big and scary. So I can understand why for a lot of young people, they would have turned to anorexia. So yes, it is going up. Another interesting side effect is that it's also being diagnosed in younger and younger girls. And there are many possible reasons for that. One of the most credible, I think, is that anorexia generally starts around puberty and the age that puberty is starting is getting lower, as we know. So it makes sense that anorexia would also kick in at a younger age. Okay. So you were 14 when mm-hmm. you had this this trigger event. And the word trigger is key here because, again, I did I always associated the word trigger with eating disorders. And I actually remember when I started seeing that word pop up in the kind of Tumblr universe um, and the kind of digital feminist blogosphere, maybe around, you know, 2012, 13 in there, I would see like the word trigger come up and it was frequently around things like talking about thinness or talking about beauty or like, you know, women's bodies. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can kind of investigate the word trigger a, a little bit but 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 talk about your trigger it was just a seemingly completely innocuous moment yeah this is one of the many reasons i find it funny that people get so obsessed with trigger warnings and trigger because for people who suffer from anorexia when they are triggered the trigger is not the main thing like it's not the cause it's just this little thing that pushes you over but it could have been anything and in my case i was i was sitting in gym class i was 14 years old and i was sat next to a girl who i call in the book lizzie it's obviously not her real name um and she was very tiny and i looked at her legs next to mine and i said to her is it hard to buy clothes when you're so small and she said meaning you know nothing bad she said yes, I wish I was normal like you. 
And that just totally, totally spun me out. And within three months, I was in hospital for anorexia. And so had you thought about your body or about weight before then? It kind of doesn't sound like it. Not at all. I, I wasn't interested in fashion magazines. I wasn't, I had no idea what my clothing size was. We didn't even have scales in my house when I was growing up. So, I mean, that just kind of shows to me that, or it should show to people, I hope, that it's not really about weight. I know that's being expressed through weight. But to me, when I heard normal, I heard not special, you know, not relevant, not, you know, no identity. You have no identity. And that's what totally freaked me out. Because anorexia really isn't about weight. I know that people find that very hard to believe, but it is about expressing an unhappy emotion through your body. Okay. And we should say this was what the late late 80s early 90s it is 1992 may 1992 okay so you were this this was there was not social media there was mm-hmm. not instagram all mm-hmm. the things that we tend to blame this stuff on now was mm-hmm. not in the mix no and i'd never looked at a fashion magazine i couldn't have named a supermodel if you know my life depended on it like n- none of that was relevant to me at all okay and you went f- full speed ahead. I mean, it was just zero to 80 instantly. Yeah. It's, you know, some of the girls and women I met in hospital, you know, for them, it was a bit longer from the trigger to hospitalization. You know, some of them would give up eating meat or, you know, take up, you know, aerobics with me. I just immediately stopped eating and started exercising obsessively, which was incredibly out of character because I loved my food and I was always trying to get out of gym class. So these, these two things were really on me. And it just, within three months, I'd lost a third of my body weight and I was in hospital. Okay. That's amazing. How did you even pull that off? (laughs) Uh, With a lot of unhappiness and anger and determination and a lot of subterfuge and lying to my parents about what was happening. Um, And I was obsessively exercising all the time and, you know, uh, obviously not eating lunch, you know, giving whatever meals I had to eat at home to my, to the dog under the table. I just, I just completely vanished basically. And nobody noticed. I noticed that you don't actually say your weight at no. any time, specifically no. in in the book. So you know, you don't. We don't have to talk in in you know stark numbers if you don't want to. <laughs> also, you talk about stone, and Americans are too dumb to figure out what that is. So <laughs> no, well, safe. I. Yeah, I mean, I like I say, I, I I don't care that much about trigger warnings. But one thing I do know is that people with eating disorders do fix on do fixate on other people's weights and also on other people's calorie intake and also their exercise routines. And I didn't want to be giving anyone in the book a bar against which to measure themselves. So I very carefully it's not that it upsets me, but I very carefully didn't don't mention how much I weigh at any point. I just I understand that for some readers that makes it harder to imagine you know, how I looked or what was going on, but I just don't want to cause any problems for people with eating disorders. Okay. But a third, did, wait, sorry. Did you just say mm-hmm. a third of mm-hmm. your mm-hmm. body weight within mm-hmm. how Three many months. months? Three months. Okay. And, you know, you talk about how your parents were noticing this, but just sort of like getting very upset. Your mother would yeah. get very upset, but she wasn't sort of like, you know, head down proactive trying to figure out how to solve it necessarily. Well, she was, but I mean, what can you do if your kid is refusing to eat? Um, And I was a very stubborn kid at this point, not normally, but as soon as the anorexia hit me, that was it. Um, You know, they they did try. My mom would take me out for long walks and say, you know, honey, you know, just eating a meal is not going to make you fat. You know, you're not naturally fat. You're going to be fine. But I didn't want to hear any of it. I just wouldn't, I would, I would sort of say, yeah, 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 I know mom, I know mom. And then I just would totally ignore her. Um, I knew that I could 
take her being upset. Her being upset was less bad than me eating and then hating myself. I'd rather mm-hmm. her be upset. Mm-hmm. How did you actually get anything done in school? Because it sounds like you just stopped eating anything. Yeah. So how, and I wondered this throughout the book. I mean, you're extremely, you're a high achiever, you get good grades, you go to school, and yet you're accomplishing this with no caloric intake. Like, how did you even focus? It's um a weird thing about not eating. You know, I know that, you know, there's a lot of like people in Silicon Valley now who talk about how fasting gives you a clear head and and things like that. Mm. And I personally find that kind of talk really weird, but that is true with the anorexia. And you get this kind of, you know, with anorexia, so much of it for me was powered by anxiety. And um, I just had so much anxious energy. And I was, I was, so I was exercising all the time and doing my schoolwork all the time. And at a certain point, I assume I would have collapsed, but, you know, I would have, you know, my heart would have given out or something. But you, anorexia just gives you this insane self destructive drive that nothing's going to stop. You say over over three years, you were hospitalized nine times. Nine times, yeah. The first time you went into the hospital, okay, so you're you're 14 years old. What was that like? So it was a very weirdly nice hospital because it was a private hospital. It was a well-known psychiatric um, hospital in London where we all had our own rooms and, you know, it was generally, um, you know, quite a pretty place, uh, which was not what the rest of the hospitals were like once I got into the NHS system. But um, it was incredibly um, confusing. You know, I'd gone from being a kid, I was in, I'm trying to think, figure out what the American grade would be. I guess it was uh, eighth grade I was in. And, you know, gone from worrying about, you know, did I have double French that day? And, you know, had I remembered to bring my physics homework to suddenly being in a psychiatric facility on the same ward as drug addicts and alcoholics or schizophrenic people wandering around. And it was scary, you know, there'd be, we'd all be watching TV in the TV room and, you know, one of the heroin addicts would go into withdrawal suddenly on the sofa and, you know, your whole life is just suddenly unrecognizable. I was being watched 24 hours a day. I was watched when I went to the toilet, watched when I was in the shower and make sure I didn't exercise or make myself sick. Um, It's impossible to describe how weird your life suddenly becomes. Were you in an all women's ward when you're talking about the alcoholics and the drug addicts were they women no 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 it was was men yeah it was um, actually mainly men and you're all sitting together talking in the tv room and yeah you know i'd gone from hanging out with a load of 14 year old girls to hanging out with 20 something usually drug addicts and middle-aged alcoholics all men uh so it was a it was a very different experience from any that i'd expected and certainly from what i expected of my school year yeah i I have to say the the book is it's very intense and it's a serious book and you do a lot of serious reporting. It's it's not just a memoir. You are a journalist. And so you are doing, you're going back and you're talking to a lot of experts and it's quite uh, seriously reported, but it's also quite funny in, in moments. <laughs> Good. Good. And I noticed that uh, some of the press, uh, some of the reviews that people seem a little perplexed that one could incorporate humor into a subject like this. And actually, it seems to me very natural. There, there's just something, there's there's an absurdity to this yeah. whole thing. And I think it's actually natural that one would adopt a sort of gallows humor about the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's how I see life as well. Otherwise, wouldn't everyone be miserable? If you can't sort of laugh about things, then everything's miserable. Yeah, well, that's a very uh, old school <laughs> approach to life. But so on on the word, you you talk about a lot of competition 
among the women on the mm-hmm. ward and, and getting sort of force fed. And so th- this is the early 90s. I think things have changed, but it seems to me extremely, it's not, doesn't sound like a good approach, like just kind of forcing people to like eat toast with butter. And yeah. it, it wasn't a wellness approach. No, uh, by any means. <laughs> no, it definitely wasn't a wellness approach. It was more like, we were geese being fattened up for foie gras. I mean, right. that was that was the approach: was just feed them up and ship them out, get other people who need the beds into the beds, and then deal with the therapy later. So it was very much just get as many calories as you can into them. Okay, because right, they wanted you to get to a certain weight, mm-hmm. and then they would release you, or you would mm-hmm. have to get to you would have to gain a certain amount of pounds, and then they would yep. let you go outside or sit on a bench exactly. or let your parents come. Exactly. And so, the, and then the idea was that you would just kind of do do the bare minimum so you could get these, get this kind of, you know, release. But then the the plan was that you would just lose weight immediately. Upon- that was my plan, very much so. I just, um, I hated my psychiatrist there. And I thought, once I got in there and I realized I was going to, there was no way around this. I couldn't fight against eating. I thought, okay, well, fine. I will put on all this stupid weight. And then as soon as I get out of here, I will lose it and lose some more to just like, fuck you, doctor. Um, and that is exactly what I did. <laughs> and so what was this about? Because you talk about being with these women and it's very competitive. And there's also a thing where like, they're all trying to be the the sickest and the thinnest and they're mm-hmm. watching the others eat and they're trying to get the other ones to eat more than mm-hmm. they do. And it's just very, I mean, Caddy and Mean Girls is putting it mi- extremely mildly. Like this is, I don't know what the word is. Yeah. I mean, anorexia is a very competitive illness. You know, you want to be the sickest, you want to be the thinnest, you want to eat less than anyone else in the room. So like when I was at home, I was always trying to give my sister and my mother food, you know, to to, partly because of the voyeuristic thrill of watching them eat um, and the vicarious pleasure I got from it, but also just to make sure I was definitely eating less than everybody. Um, And anorexics are incredibly competitive with each other. Now, sometimes on the ward, you get a really nice mix of people and, you know, the women and the girls can all be supportive to each other because we all know what each other's going through. On the other hand, you get a different kind of mix and you and you get a lot of real bullying going on in the ward because no one knows how to bully another anorexic better than another bully. So, you know, sometimes there would be, you know, women who would sneak looks at the nurse's weight charts and know who weighed the most and the least on the ward. And then they would make a thing about that or they would, you know, be trying to, you know, get rid of more of their food in the dining room than anyone else and making sure everybody else knew about it. And it was incredibly scary. And also a lot of these women, you know, it's not just teenage girls who have anorexia, it's adult women. And obviously there's men and boys too, but it it is majority female um, suffered illness. And these women were like 30, in their 30s, in their 40s. I mean, bearing in mind, I was a teenager and I had no idea that adults could behave like that. It never occurred to me. So it was quite overwhelming. But on the other hand, those kind of differences between groups of people, age, you know, class, um, you know, whatever, um, sort of vanish when you're all on a ward like that. You're all just anorexics. And it's just like every woman for herself. Like you're gonna try to get the smallest piece. You're gonna try to get rid of the most food. Describe what you looked like at that time. In hospital? Yeah. I lost most of my hair. I had body hair growing all over my body, kind of like like a pelt. Because um, first of all, when you when you lose a lot of weight very quickly, um, a lot of times people lose their hair, and I I was eating nothing basically, so all my hair fell out, and people 
on the street used to ask me if I was on chemo. Um, and it's never grown back properly either. And then the hair grows on your body to, in an attempt to try to keep your body warm. Um, so I just looked bizarre. I looked like a little woodland animal. My lips were all dry and bleeding. Um, my hands were really dry and cracked because I had I was already starting with this OCD hand washing situation, which would get a lot worse in the next few years. I was always twitching, always moving because I, I couldn't bear to sit still or to stand still. I always had to be burning calories somehow. So I, I just looked like a crazy person, really, which I was. <laughs> Were you proud of the way you looked? Though? Um, yes. Uh, in this, I couldn't picture it as a whole, but I loved seeing, you know, my hip bones poking through. I loved being able to circle, you know, my thighs. So I, I definitely knew that I was really thin i you know i couldn't have envisaged it but i used to I, you know there weren't camera phones then but there were um disposable cameras which i used to buy and when i would get really thin i would buy one and i would photograph bits of my body because i i liked it so much and try to take photos of myself in the mirror i was really proud of it to be honest i was i was really proud of how i looked so you say that it's the competition is not about who's the thinnest but who is the illest or the yep. most ill. Yeah. Describe that because I think a lot of people don't understand that. Yeah. It amazes me how people always think anorexia is about wanting to look thin. And I get that that's what anorexics themselves say, but that, that's not it. It's about wanting to look ill. You know, someone with anorexia, they're, they are mentally unwell, but they're not stupid. Like they, they understand that Giselle, you know, eats more than they do a day and that, you know, Kate Moss or whoever isn't, you know, exercising all the time like they do. They're they're trying to look ill because they're trying to communicate without articulating it that they are unhappy, that they are angry, that they are filled with shame or self-loathing. That is what anorexia is about. It's about nonverbal articulation. Okay. So what were you angry and self-loathing about, perhaps unconsciously, before this trigger event? What what was sort of the the series of the, the constellation of conditions that led to this? Yeah, it's, um, there's a reason that it's girls and women who mainly suffer from anorexia. And that's because I think a lot of girls and women find certain experiences and emotions hard to verbalize. So for me, you know, I, I sort I don't know really when I kind of put it together, but two of the most formative memories when I was a child is when I was about six years old and I was at school and I wasn't able to do the splits like a friend of mine was. And I said to my teacher, I hate Hadley. And she just immediately burst into tears. And I sort of said it again because I wasn't sure. I couldn't really understand what was going on. I just said, I, I, I hate Hadley. And she said, oh, stop saying that. Stop saying that. And I was really sobbing with horror that this little girl would say such a thing. Wait, you couldn't do a split? Sorry. Like, yeah, like, I could, like a, you, you know, mean gymnastics. like a gymnastics? Yeah, gymnastics. Okay. okay. And, and, and so, you were six. No, I was six. And I just went, I hate myself. You know, I was really angry with myself because my friend could do it. And the teacher just so completely was so shocked that a little girl would say this that she cried. And I remember thinking at the time, I just thought, oh, I, I'm, I, I can't say, I can't tell people how I feel because it, it hurts them. So then I, I stopped, you know, I, I became just the ultimate people pleaser. I was always trying to say what people expected me to say in conversations. I was terrified of having an opinion that would upset someone else. And I would never say it. And I started to suffer, I started to get anxiety a lot of the time. So I started to have little OCD ticks by the time I was about eight you know, if I spun one way, I'd spin another way. And, you know, if I tapped my left hand, I had to tap my right hand. There's all that kind of stuff. And one way that I found to alleviate the anxiety, which I didn't understand at all at the time, was I would go into a bathroom stall and put my hand between my legs. And of course, what I was doing, like, 
realized as a grown up was I was masturbating. But to mm. me, it just felt like a way of calming the like the anxious feeling inside of myself. I think, you know, and that's very common for a lot of children, which is why I put it in the book, because I think people associate masturbation, of course, with like sex and porn and eroticism. But it is something that a lot of little children do because it's a way of self soothing. And mm -hmm. I think parents find that really disturbing and they freak out when, when they see it. And that is what happened to me. It wasn't my parents. It was a teacher who caught me in the stall and she was so horrified when she saw me with my hand between my legs and she dragged me to the school nurse and said to the school nurse, need, you need to inspect her for her rash down there. There's something wrong. And I just felt such shame at that point. I knew I'd done something really disgusting, although I didn't know what it was. And of course there were other things, you know, I mean, like I say, you know, none of these things are terrible and these things happen to a lot of kids. But for me, my reaction to them was to feel such shame and such self-loathing and also to associate pleasure with humiliation and, you know, to feel like I wasn't allowed to, to say things that might upset people. And it eventually just came out expressed as anorexia. Okay. And you also sort of fit the bill because you are pretty affluent community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you were going to private schools yeah. or yeah. what we in the U S would call private schools. Yeah. Um, how much of that do you think played in like talk about the relationship between sort of your family, your, your socioeconomic class and this disorder? So I did grow up very pretty affluent. My father worked on wall street, but he himself had grown up very lower middle class. So it wasn't like everyone in my family was really well off, but I definitely grew up very well off. And, um, in that sense, I was quite a classic, you know, you know, what people think of as a classic, you know, anorexia case. And it is true that anorexia is kind of more prevalent a lot of the time in these high pressure private schools, which is what I always went to. Um, but it's not solely there. You know, the doctors I spoke to in the book, they said, you know, it used to be just in certain social classes, but now it, it spans all social classes. Interestingly, they do say it is mostly prevalent among Caucasian girls and women. It's much rarer in different ethnic communities, and they don't really know why. And, you know, some people think this has something to do with genetics or metabolic rate. And I'm sure, you know, that that may be. I don't want to, you know, contradict any geneticists out there or anybody. But um, it may also just to do with social issues within those different demographics. You know, difficulty in discussing things or expectations on girls and women in those demographics. I don't know. I mean, I'll leave that for a doctor to talk about better. But certainly... It, there is something about those high-pressured private schools. And I think girls who feel like I did, that they are not smart enough. They're not one of the smart girls. They're not one of the pretty girls. They're not one of the cool girls. They may feel they don't have an identity. They're nothing. And then they try to disappear. Hmm. You talk about how you write the truism that the more westernized a country is, the higher the rates of eating disorders you say that's correct only in regards to bulimia, which is a pretty different kind of eating disorder. Yeah, a very different kind of eating disorder. Um, and they are grouped together. And it's not always helpful on eating disorder wards. You know, the, we, I was often on wards with girls and women who have bulimia because there's a weird kind of competition between someone with anorexia and someone with bulimia. And I remember one therapist said, bulimia is an anorexic's worst nightmare and anorexia is a bulimic's fantasy. And there is there is some truth in that. And um, that's why it's sort of awkward to talk about them together. They are very different, although one can elide into the other. And is bulimia more just like a straightforward, 
that I want to be thin kind of thing. Like I want to figure out how to control my body this way. Exactly. It it has a more kind of normalized motivation, if that makes sense. It's about wanting to lose a few pounds rather than wanting to look like you just got out of Belson. Okay. So let's drill down on this because you wanted to look like you got out of out of Belson. Were you at all interested in like people finding you attractive or being able to look a certain way in clothes? Or was it really just completely internal, like a sort of OCD, just thought vortex that you could not get out of? Um, no, I, I wanted to look extremely skinny. And you know, as skinny as possible. And I had one of my greatest fears was the idea that people would look at me and know that I ate, which is why coming out of hospital was always a disaster because I was supposed to keep putting on weight when I kept came out of hospital. And, and that was just impossible. I wanted to look like I had no needs, you know, that I, I didn't need anything. That was like a really conscious thought I had in my head. I didn't, it t- you know, the idea of needing something seemed so shameful to me, like needing food and like, or having appetite. Like the idea that someone would look at me and know that when I'm hungry, I went out and got food and ate it. Like that, that whole mentality, it, it just horrified me. So I, I wanted to look like I didn't eat is the truth. Did you think that you were fat before this started or was it just that you were quote unquote normal? No, I never thought I was fat. I was always one of the normal, slim kids in a class. But I was suddenly at that point fatter than I wanted to be, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. You have a younger sister. Mm -hmm. Talk about her. Like You do talk a little bit about your mother, about Mm -hmm. how she was always very slim, but also Mm -hmm. had her own eating issues. How did this affect your sister? Uh, My sister, so my sister is only 15 months younger than me. And she was very angry with me for a very long time and felt that I had destroyed the family life. I think she was totally terrified, like what on earth was going on with me? And she felt embarrassed. She didn't like people at school knowing she had an anorexic sister. She didn't really come visit me in hospital, which, you know, I understood. And I felt totally alienated from her too. She was suddenly living a life that I had no understanding of at all. And when I would come out of hospital, I used to say like quite weird things to her. I feel so embarrassed now about asking, you know, were you jealous when I was super skinny and things like that. And I found while I was going through my old diaries to write the book, this like questionnaire, I'd like slid under her bedroom door um, with all the questions I wanted to ask her, such as, did you ever, do you ever want to know what I ate in hospital? Did you ever want to know what I weighed when I was at my lowest? Cause I had this idea that everybody wanted to be like me. And, you know, everybody would, everybody would be like me if they were as strong as me is kind of what I right. thought. And my sister was just like, no, no way. God, you crazy. Thanks <laughs> to everything. It's quite funny to read now, but I just assumed she was lying. So it was incredibly hard on her. And also my mom was, you know, at home crying all the time, just so worried about me and feeling like a failure as a mother. And my father felt so helpless. So I did completely disrupt the family life. So how did you finally start to come out of this? You you finally found a therapist yep. with whom you could work effectively. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it took a long time. I went through a lot of really terrible doctors who either were lazy or had no interest in me or were stupider than me. And in no way am I saying I'm that smart. It just goes to show it's maybe not that hard to have been a therapist in the 90s. And then eventually I found one who was terrific and who really understood me and I really trusted her. And the main benefits of her, well, the main one was that she insisted I stay in school, whereas all the other doctors insisted that 
you know, if you go into hospital for anorexia, you have to drop out of school. And that's what all the other teenagers in hospital did. And I didn't. And, but, you know, there's no question that is why I'm fully recovered now is because I kept up with my schoolwork. And once I finally got out of hospital after three years, I went back into the school system and then to college. And that was the saving of me. Whereas the other girls and women I was in hospital with, um, who I tracked down for the book, like it took them much longer if they dropped out of school to recover and, you know, if they've recovered at all and if, you know, a lot of them haven't fully recovered. So I, I know how lucky I am. So that was a big thing, staying in school and doing my exams that my, what you know, the equivalent of PSATs I took on the hospital ward, which made a huge difference. And then the next thing was I was having breakfast one morning in the dining room with all the other patients. And um, I was sat opposite a woman who was in her early 30s and um, and she started crying because she felt there was more butter on her toast than every, anyone else's. And, you know, this happened at every meal. Someone would have a breakdown because they felt they had the bigger piece or, you know, they had more mashed potatoes than other people or, or whatever. And I looked at her and I suddenly, I just thought without thinking about it, when, when I'm 32, I won't be having temper tantrums over toast. And things then things started to shift because by that point, like I said, I've been in hospital nine times. I really just kind of accepted, oh, this is going to be my life now. I'm just going to be in and out of hospital for the rest of my life. Like a lot of these women in here. I mean, they were 40, they were women there in their 40s and 50s. And that's all their lives have been was going in and out of hospital. And I thought, okay, yeah, that's what it's going to be because what's the option? I can't eat at home. Like there's nothing worse than the idea of eating at home. So I'll just go in and out of hospital forever. But with that moment and with getting my PSATs, I suddenly thought maybe, maybe there is a way around this. So what was it about university that changed things? Um, the main thing was I was just in a totally different context. So I wasn't, uh, I suddenly had friends who weren't anorexic. Like all my, well, my only friends for the past three years have been other anorexic girls. Um, Cause I lost all my friends from school. There was a new focus and I channeled all my mad, anxious energy and anorexia energy into studying, which wasn't necessarily always so help- healthy. Like I'd be in the library 18 hours a day, but it was a lot better than exercising for 18 hours a day. And the other big thing um, was my therapist, the same one, said to me, if you lose weight again, I'm not going to put you back in hospital because I think you enjoy it. Instead, I'm going to tell your parents that they need to hire a private nurse to watch you at home and you eat at home. And that thought was so horrific to me, the amount of money my parents would have to spend on that. And, you know, me basically being like Boo Radley, like this freak living at home with their parents, <laughs> like with a psychiatric nurse, like the whole thing was just so <laughs> shameful to me. And not being at a hospital where you can kind of, you're opting out of the world, but it doesn't really feel like it because if you're with other people who are doing it too, like that, that's fine. But being this, as I, as I thought to myself, this freak at home with their parents, you know, being a 40 something anorexic still living with their parents with a psychiatric nurse, no, unbearable. So I ate enough to go to hospital and, and to go to, uh, to stay out of hospital, sorry, and to go to college. Okay. And I shouldn't be laughing, but there's something amazing about that (laughs) image of the Boo Radley and the the nurse. But actually, before we we talk more about sort of what happens after this, I just want to make sure people like have the, the full picture here in terms of the exercising. You before you went to the hospital initially, I think you talked about going to the gym like three times a day. And I wondered how as a 14 year old, you even did that? Like, where did you go? And did you have a gym membership? Like, I did have, I, so there was a gym that opened up near my um, parents' home on what we in England called the high street, you know, the main street. And I looked on, I looked, I went over there and I looked on its, its schedule inside and they had all these aerobics classes. And I knew from, you know, seeing, 
you know, Jane Fonda videos in my local video store. They're doing aerobics classes was how you stay thin. So I just started going and I would just take, you know, get money from my mom, I guess, um, from her purse probably, and just go. And I was going to all these like Tums and Bums classes and classes like I, and step classes. I did a lot of step classes, what they called then stationary bike classes, what we now call spin classes. I even went to classes for new moms, even though like I was a 14 year old <laughs> child, like anything, anything that would burn calories. And I had all these, I thought like, oh yeah, there's the class for new moms. That'll be focusing on the stomach, right? Okay, that's good. I'll do that. Um, the Tums and Bums class was hilarious because it was full of basically middle-aged women, you know, trying to get rid of their cellulite. <laughs> there's 14 year old me like jogging along with them. Did anybody them. say anything? Did the instructor say anything? Nope, nothing. And I would also, the only time anyone said something to me was when they told me off for hogging the running machine. Cause I was like running for so long every day on the running oh, machine. Yeah. Cause I wasn't, my parents didn't really allow me to go like running on the street or in the park. So I used to just go to the gym to run. And I just remember this, this man, this like 30 something man saying, Hey, you've been on that for a long time. And I've been on for, you know, however long, uh, but that was it. No one ever said, why is there a 14 year old girl in this gym all the time? Now maybe they would, I don't know, but then nope, no one thought about it. Okay. And then when you got to the hospital, you would do things like hide, there was a particular sort of corner that you could go into and do jumping jacks if and yeah. it would be out of the, the view of the nurse if she walked by. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. So I, um, I had these exercise routines that I would do every day at certain times. And when you go to hospital, certainly at first you're on bed rest and watch 24 hours a day, you know, your door is always open. The nurses can see straight into your room, but I quickly found like little corner of my room that they couldn't see into like their blind spot. And anytime I could, I would jump out of bed and just stand on that spot, do jumping jacks or sit-ups, um, press-ups, all the exercises I'd found in, in various diet magazines. And then when I'd hear the, the footsteps coming down the corridor, I'd just jump back into bed and try to pretend I was reading a book or something. Um, and whenever I took a shower, you know, there would be a nurse sort of st- sitting in the bathroom. And it was those kind of old-fashioned 90s showers, you know, in a bathtub. And I would just try I would like march in place so they couldn't see my feet moving but anything so that I wasn't standing still in the shower. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Like anytime I'd sit, like they were always trying to get me to sit in the TV room. I'd be jiggling my leg or shaking my wrist and they would come and literally like sit on me to try to make me stop. I just, they couldn't, I mean, I would, I was absolutely determined to, to do everything that I, I normally did. This does sound like OCD. It's not yeah, yeah. about yeah. like, this is not a diet. This is a brain this is something going on in your brain. And and I you wanted to die, you say. You yeah. were more interested in in dying than in eating. Oh yeah. And I would read books about, you know, other anorexics who had died. So there was this one called um uh Catherine, the story of a girl who died from anorexia, I think. That was written by her mother. And I would I would read it and and feel jealous of her because I would think, wow, she was, she was able to die. That's she it was able to starve herself to death. I didn't want to kill myself because that seemed like a cheaty way out. But I thought if I starve myself to death, people would be, they would really think, wow, that girl was strong. Like she, she really went there. And, and the idea of eating was so horrific to me. Like I knew the, the guilt I would feel. And I could imagine like my legs feeling like my legs getting bigger and my tummy getting bigger. And I just couldn't bear those emotions. So I would rather starve to death than, than to eat at home. That, I mean, that was when it was, you know, at its worst. Um, and the problem with anorexia is that 
I mean, one of the many problems with anorexia, but is that the the more weight you lose, the more confused your brain gets because it it's not functioning properly, and you know it's not getting enough oxygen, it's not getting enough nutrients. So your brain becomes more befuddled and delusional, and that exacerbates the anorexic thoughts. So you become more crazed in your thinking, um, and that makes you become physically worse, and that makes you become mentally worse, and it just becomes this ongoing problem. Did you? see yourself as somebody who might someday have a relationship, an intimate relationship? What were your feelings about sexuality? So, um, No, I was completely, it wasn't that I had any terrible experiences, like no one had ever abused me or anything. Um, I was very emotionally immature. Um, I had no interest in having a boyfriend and I found the whole idea kind of terrifying. And that definitely played a part in why I became anorexic. Anorexia almost invariably starts around puberty. And there are many re- you know, theories about that. Is that about hormones? Is about fear of becoming a woman, fear of sexuality, fear of sex, fear of being sexualized? I think all those things very much played a part in, for me. I'm obviously, well, maybe you can't hear it anymore, but I am American. I moved to England when I was 11, um, and this happened when I was 14, but my parents still sent me back to the States for summer camp every summer. Um, I would go to this place in Maine. And I remember quite early on when I was about 11 or 12, the girls in my cabin were caught behind the cabin with some boys and they all had their t-shirts off. And I found this really scary. I didn't really understand why they had their t-shirts off, but I knew I couldn't ask anyone because they would laugh at me. And then when I was about 13, you know, just turning 14, the girls in my class started to get boyfriends. And I really didn't like that either. I found that really sort of scary and, you know, overwhelming. And, and you know, all these things definitely played a part in why I became anorexic. Um, so, no, I, I never thought about it. I never thought about having a boyfriend. I never wanted to. I couldn't. I The idea of sex just seemed really scary and it sounded incredibly painful. So I just had no interest in it at all. So when did that start to change? Uh, let's see. You, you do are you do have three children. You're you're married and have three children now. So obviously yeah. something yeah. shifted. At something some point. changed yeah, along the way. So when I went to college, I was still pretty anorexic, and I ate the same exactly the same food every day alone in my room. What did you, you got a refrigerator in your in your room? You didn't have to go to the dining hall. Yeah, I got basically like a drinks cooler, which lived in my room, and I could keep all my you know crazy foods that I ate every day. In what, it. what did you eat? What were those foods? Um, well, it's just very, I, I see, I always, I mean, it's not like I'm trying to be secret, Megan. I just do worry about like giving foods and calories, but I mean, things like little yogurts and, you know, that, that kind of stuff and, and bags of vegetables that I would snack on and stuff like that. But then I became 19 and I suddenly realized, oh my God, I'm like, like a 19 year old virgin, a sophomore at college. And for some reason, this felt incredibly shameful to me, which is probably an actually normal feeling in a way, um, a lot more normal than wanting to keep bags of broccoli in a drinks cooler in your room. And so I just went out and slept with some guy, which was actually a miserable experience. And then in a lot of ways, my sexual experiences were probably quite similar to a lot of other girls of that age in that I then slept with boys and men for validation rather than any you know great desire for them and I had no real interest in whether they treated me nicely or not um but I found I I tried to get validation from them but that you know in some ways yes that is a lot of girls and women do that in their teens and 20s but it was also just part of the pattern of self-destructive behavior for me and also I wasn't looking it's not like I ever expected to enjoy sex I mean I'd gone without pleasure in my life for so long it it never occurred to me that maybe sex could be something that was pleasurable so it didn't bother me that I didn't enjoy it 
I just I kind of ticked this off a list of something I was supposed to do. What did you look like at that point? Had your hair grown back? What did you still have the body hair? Uh, no, the body hair that goes like when you put on weight. Um, so no, I, I, I no longer looked like a little hedgehog, but my hair was uh, really thin and patchy and still is, you know, and there's a certain, you know, people on the internet when they want to yell at me about something, if they've seen a photo of me in the paper, they will, they often make a comment about my hair. Um, Cause it is still very thin. It never grew back properly. So it was quite scrappy. You know, I, I still had very dry lips cause I wasn't eating properly and, and quite dry hands, but, and I was, definitely really thin. I was sort of shocked when I was looking through photos for the book, which in the end I, I decided not to put in of photos of myself at university. So I was like, wow, I was actually really pretty thin still, which I, I hadn't realized at the time. But no one ever said anything to me. No one, no one made comments, which I think they probably would now. So that was 1997. And I think now if someone at university looked like I did, probably people would, would say something. So what, uh, let's sort of, you know, cut to the to the current moment or the last several years what made you want to write this book you've been a journalist you've been writing cultural criticism you write about you know, the arts and social politics and the world that we're in what made you want to take this subject on now well so last september so september uh, 2022 it was 30 years exactly since my first admission so it's been a long time also, I'm now in my mid-40s, so a lot of my friends have teenage daughters, and I was surprised to get so many messages from them during the pandemic saying that their daughter had stopped eating or she was suddenly exercising all the time in her room, and did I have any advice? Because I thought, kind of like you, that you know, anorexia had gone the way of the you know, sort of landline telephone. It wasn't something that was a big <laughs> thing anymore, or like people didn't care. Very 80s. Yeah, yeah it's like very 80s super it. passe, man. Um, <laughs> so, but then I thought, oh, right, you know, girls are still doing this. Maybe I actually have some perspective that could help people. And also, there's so few anorexia stories that get told that have happy endings. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not dead yet, but you know, I feel like mine is happy. I did fully recover. So I thought maybe this could be a, you know, a hopeful story for people and also a useful story maybe, and maybe could make some of these girls feel less alone. Well, we might as well get to this because this is something I think a pro people are probably anticipating that I will ask you. You do take on in the book, this sort of intersection between gender dysphoria and a lot of the body dysmorphia slash dysphoria. Those are two slightly mm -hmm. different things mm -hmm. um, that we see going on now. Mm -hmm and what they may have to do with one another and what they may not have to do with one another. So people have made the sort of observation that anorexia then gave way to cutting, mm -hmm. you know, self-mutilation, that sort of thing, which I think started to arise in the, in the 90s, mm -hmm. maybe. That's when mm -hmm. I noticed it. And now we have, obviously, this, this whole phenomenon of, of gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. Talk about how that does and does not track. So I was not planning to write about gender in this book. I mean, I feel like I spend so much time, you know, <laughs> having to deal with it. In, Avoiding in writing, uh, <laughs> trying no, no, to keep no, yourself I, from writing about it. And, yeah. Or uh, just like having, you know, dealing with it at work. But I, while I was working on it, I noticed this news story that said, I think it was something like 74% of admissions at JIDS, which is the only NHS gender clinic in England and Wales for children and young people, and it's about to be shut down. In fact, 74% um, of the admissions are teenage girls. And that really stood out to me because it's about 90 to 95% 
teenage girls, uh, anorexics are teenage girls. And I didn't just want to like airily pull opinions out of my butt for this. So I went off and interviewed a whole load of doctors, including three doctors who formerly worked at JITS and still work in adolescent healthcare and, and, you know, often with eating disorders. And what one of them said to me that made a lot of sense was, you know, in every generation, there's a symptom pool and people who are experiencing certain emotions go down to that symptom pool and pull out the current symptoms. So like you said, you know, the eighties, it was anorexia in the early nineties, there was bulimia in the late nineties, two thousands, it was cutting. And now we have gender dysphoria. And, um, you know, for me, so much of anorexia was about fear of growing up, fear of becoming a woman, fear of sex, fear of being sexualized, fear of my own sexuality. And for a lot of these teenage girls who are you know, basically saying, I don't want to be a woman, that's, that's, those are the emotions that are underpinning it. Now, you know, obviously, I'm not saying every teenage girl who's going through this is, you know, a, a latent anorexic, nor all an- anorexics, gender dysphoric. But I do think it's very weird how gender activists insistently group very disparate groups of people under a single umbrella, you know, an adult male who wants to change gender is obviously very different from an unhappy teenage girl and also very different from a confused five-year-old. And there are different motivations for those people and those groups um, for what they're going through. So, you know, teenage girls have traditionally always, for a long, long time, expressed their unhappiness through their body. You know, the cliche is that teenage boys express unhappiness outwardly. You know, they get into fights at school, they get into drugs or alcohol. Teenage girls take it out on their bodies. They starve themselves, they cut themselves. And now we see a lot of teenage girls, certainly around where I live, North London, which is sort of like flipping up Brooklyn, you know, getting chest binders, you know, cutting off all their hair, you know, doing these things to say, basically, I'm not, you know, don't look, I'm not a girl, don't, don't sexualize me. And I, I find it frustrating that people aren't looking at it more deeply. And it's also hard, you know, like I say, it's not an all or nothing thing. In some cases, yes, they are genuinely gender dysphoric. In some cases, there's a lot of unhappiness going on here. And when I spoke to some young uh, women and teenage girls for the book who are uh, going through anorexia, one thing that came up a lot was them saying, I don't look like I'm not one of the pretty girls. And I remember feeling like that. And, you know, in the 90s, when I was sick, there were options that you could have if you didn't feel like one of the pretty girls. Like for me, I later became really quite gothy. You know, there were there were demographics you could join. You could be a punk mm-hmm. or, you know, an athlete or something. You know, all the, all the breakfast club demographics, basically. <laughs> Either way, if you can't make it as an athlete, you can be a punk. That exactly. Was exactly. Option. Like there were different groups you could join. You know, you don't have to compete to be the cheerleader. You can, you can join a different subculture. And those subcultures don't exist so much anymore for kids. Those subcultures are now basically things to do with gender whether it's you know non-binary or transmasculine transfeminine and the whole gender movement is i think very regressive in that it's saying if you are a certain type you know to be a, you know, a certain type of person is a woman like to be a woman you have to be feminine and to be a man you have to be masculine and if you're a girl who doesn't really feel feminine that can feel very you know disorientating like i certainly felt as a teenage girl not very pretty and not very sexy and i didn't want to be anyway because that seemed really you know what, what would boys want from me if i was and so i opted out by becoming anorexic and I think there is a growing awareness, certainly among all the doctors I spoke to, that the same feelings can underpin a lot of teenage girls' gender dysphoria. Do you think that if the gender stuff had been around when you were that age, you would have gone that direction? If you were 14 years old right now, do mm-hmm. you think you would have gone into the, the gender world or would you have been anorexic? It's very hard for me 
to kind of imagine myself as a teenager having these the pressures that teenage girls have on them now it's entirely possible i'd have gone non-binary but i the anorexia just made so much sense to me in so many ways like not eating is seen as a very good thing for girls and women like you know you want to be a greedy woman so in that sense anorexia made sense to me but i was absolutely terrified of growing up and being sexualized so i i you know it could well have been that instead i mean who knows it's very hard to apply historical actions which i guess my teenage years were now historical to modern you know social mores basically yeah and i'm also curious like how you think about kind of quote-unquote real anorexia versus a sort of um just sort of you know drive through sort of you know, eating disorder, because I guess it's a spectrum, right? Is it fair to say that eating disorder is a spectrum? So, you know, there's, there's somebody like you, like, you know, extreme case, but I, you know, so many girls and women just are obsessed with their bodies and Mm -hmm. they're eating and restricting their eating and, and being thin. And, you know, it's always sort of in the back of their minds. Yeah. And I think that that maybe started to happen with cutting as well. Mm-hmm. There's like serious bodily harm. And then there seems like a lot of kids are just kind of just doing it. I don't want to say performatively because that sounds dismissive, but just like, you know, little, little Nick here and there, or, yeah. you know, this is kind of, it's like, like getting a little tattoo that you can do yourself or something like that. I, I don't know. So I, I don't really know what I'm asking, but it, it seems like, especially with the with the Instagram culture and what we have now there's such an obsession with looking a, a certain way mm. but you can kind of commit to it w- with at any number of levels you know yeah i would i've never been very good at dabbling i'm very much all or nothing like <laughs> yeah. when i'm into something i'm really into it and then when i'm done with it i'm done so yeah you know there sometimes what you know when when i talk about my experience which isn't very often with anorexia um uh, you know, someone will say, oh, uh, you know, I had that, you know, I, I stopped eating lunch at college right. or something. And I think, you know, that's sweet, you know, <laughs> but I'm also grateful. I'm also glad to be me and not them is the truth, because I'm glad I really dealt with it. Whereas most people who, who dabble in eating disorders never really get it dealt with. And then it just lingers over them for the rest of their lives. And, and I don't feel like I have that. Really? Because I, my understanding was that once you're an anorexic, it really never goes away. I mean, you can manage well, it, but it's always in your, in your mind. You, it, you yes. don't consider yourself dealing with this anymore. Well, not certainly not the way it was. And also I feel like when you, when you've had to deal with it as much as I have, you're very conscious of it. I mean, for me, I will never, I'm much more aware of it than maybe some people who are more light dabblers. And I'm also aware of how I use it to punish myself. I think, I think maybe what I mean is I have more understanding of it and my and of myself than people who just kind of skip lunch for a bit in their junior year of college. Like I do, I know exactly what it was about. I know where it came from for me and I know that I can control it. What do you think is happening for young girls these days? Is it, are you of the belief that it's a lot harder to be a young woman today than it was 30 years ago? I don't know. It's, I, you know, first of all, I'm not one, so I don't know if that's true. I, I, I am glad that I wasn't, um, a, that when I was a teenager, there weren't mobile phones and the internet, definitely. Um, but there were other things. Girls and women always find ways to make life hard for themselves and to torture each other. Um, I do think there's a really regressive attitude to what women should be and how women should look. You know, when I was a teenager, there were some pretty 
you know, pretty out there women around. There was like KD Lang, you know, there was Courtney Love. Um, you know, there were women who were really not adhering to feminine norms at all. I mean, that wasn't even an issue, you know, like Annie Lennox, like no one even thought about it. Like, like she doesn't have long hair. Of course she doesn't have long hair. Like this wasn't a thing. And, you know, there were men like Boy George from the eighties, Prince, like it just wasn't an issue. And now it's like, if you even have short hair, that's like a statement that you're non-binary is what it feels like with celebrities. And the way, you know, if you're a woman, you're, you, you know, the, the expectation that you, you're supposed to be looking at like Kim Kardashian or something. I find that very strange. And men now, certainly the celebrity men, they're, they're much more masculine. They're much more macho. Like, you know, the celebrity pinups when I was young were like River Phoenix, who was quite girly, really. Um, yeah. And yeah. sensitive and gentle. There was none of this kind of like Chris Hemsworth situation. Yeah. So I find it quite odd how binary things are. And if you don't fit into that binary, then that means you're, you need to change your gender, which I just find bizarre. And I wonder what you think of the body positivity movement, for instance. Um, Kim Kardashian, the fact, and I know Kim Kardashian is not an example of the body positivity (laughs) movement. That's a sort of other thing, but the fact that the sort of rounder, less stereotypically eating disorder looking Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. body types kind of came into fashion. Do you think that that sort of made people less anorexic or did it just kind of change? Yeah, it's not really about thin being in, although I know why people focus on that. To me, yeah. uh, for women learn from a really young age that how they look is the thing that people listen to most about them. Like that's the thing that speaks loudest is their body. Um, so when, you know, I, I read out the body positivity movement, I think, well, that that's nice, you know, definitely, you know, tell girls they don't need to be skinny, but you're still telling them that whether they're big or they're small, their body is the most important thing about them. And that's how they'll be defined. Um, And that's kind of what anorexia is also about. It's, you know, they're trying to communicate with something with the instrument that they know people pay attention to. Right. And again, back to the gender thing, the fact is that so many of the gender dysphoric kids that you see have eating disorders yeah yeah. they go with they go along they go with each other yeah they are there's a huge correlation of eating disorders with gender dysphoric people of both sexes and there was a theory for a while well of course you know a gender dysphoric male or female will try to starve themselves in order to make themselves you know to change their bodies but it's it's not that simple like maybe that is sometimes the case but it's also not always it's a lot of things are going on at the same time there and all being expressed through the body right and also just you do mention autism and Mm -hmm. there was a talk for a while that there was a connection between autism and anorexia and obviously we talk about that connection with regard to gender dysphoria but there hasn't really been an autism anorexia connection ultimately right uh, well, it's sort of hard to say. So there's this one doctor in Britain called um, Dr. Kate Chantoria, who's really specialized in this. And she says, you know, when they've done tests on inpatients and anorexia wards, there's like a huge, hugely high notable, you know, uh, results showing um, autism spectrum disorder among the patients. But other doctors I spoke to say, you can't test somebody when they're in the throes of anorexia because a lot of the symptoms of starvation look like autism, such as lack of empathy and, you know, trying to make yourself disappear and rigidity mm. and thinking, all that kind of thing. But you know, one of the doctors I spoke to said, you know, the way to think about it is a Venn diagram with autism in one bubble, anorexia in another, and gender dysphoria at the bottom. And for some people, there'll be three of those factors, some two and some just one. 
So it, it's a complicated, it's those three together, I think are, are quite an interesting interplay there. Yeah. And you do see a lot of the same kind of behaviors and temperaments yeah. in gender dysphoric kids, as you see in anorexics, this yeah. kind of defiance, the obsession. Yeah. I mean, you talk about how there's just nothing, you, you thought about nothing other than don't eat, don't eat. Everything, everything was around this absolute just all encompassing. And that's what you see in a lot of the, the gender dysphoric kids. There's no other subject. Yes. And I mean, the difference is, is that, you know, obviously the adults around the anorexic child are saying you're wrong and we need to get you back to how you were. Whereas the adults often, not always, I get that, but a lot of the time around gender dysphoric kids are saying, oh my God, this is your true self and we must help you realize it. So, right. you know, it's uh, being validated by people around them as yeah, opposed because it's been politicized i guess anorexia yeah, was never yeah. politicized no and nobody was ever saying you're right five stone is your true identity like, it's no, not an identity yeah, yeah yeah i'm curious what you think about dylan mulvaney <laughs> because okay to me and in case i, I think most people know who this person yes, is yes. but this is an influencer uh i is he not he's is he trans? I don't know, whatever he is. Just look, look him up. I'm not going to explain it, but he's, I'm going to say he's, his whole thing is he's a girl. He's, he's a biological man who is um, becoming this kind of quasi trans influencer and kind of uh, this Audrey Hepburn sort of look. And, you know, it occurred to me the other day, he's not a, a gender influencer. He's a thinspo person. Yeah. And enti- he's anorexic. Well, it's entirely about, emaciation increasingly with him yeah someone put up i saw on twitter um like a a compilation of loads of tweets that people had posted in reaction to one of dylan mulvaney's videos in which i i I try to avoid the pronoun thing but in which dylan is wearing whatever um, a swimsuit and all these girls were posting on twitter oh my god i wish my chest was like that oh wow look you can see the clavicles and yeah you know there is um you know, teenage, you know, to be, if you're a teenage girl who's developing, your body is getting softer and rounder in a lot of ways. You know, the the body of a teenage boy is generally bonier, thinner, you know, males have less body fat than females. So, you know, there, there is a kind of thin spo thing about um, the whole trans movement as, as well for a lot of anorexic, you know, that would be an appeal for a a girl with anorexia is the thin sponess of a teenage boy's body. Yeah, and thinspo is th- thinspiration. Thinspiration, yeah. That, yeah. So, which was a big thing on Instagram for a while. Instagram claims to have gotten rid of it, but the girls I spoke to, who are going through anorexia now, they said it's you don't get overtly thinspo things, but you get girls on Instagram kind of quote unquote charting their recovery, but actually just putting up photos of how thin they still are. So it's mm. like it's like subtle thinspo, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, right. There was this subculture of pro-Anna, they yeah. would be called. So pro-anorexic. Exactly. And, uh, it's kind of this kind of just voyeuristic, just looking at pictures of emaciated people. Have they got? Have they sort of gotten rid of that? Or I guess they sort of can't. But... Well, they've gotten rid of people putting up photos and bragging about how thin they are. What mm-hmm. they What they haven't got rid of is people putting up photos of how thin they are and going, oh, I'm so worried I've lost five pounds this week. And so when I left hospital, one of the things my therapist told me was you have to, you have to cut off all contact with the girls, you know, in hospital who by then were my only friends because, you know, I didn't have any friends from school Um, and nurses and eating stores and eating store wards now say what they also tell girls these days is to stop following 
the patients on social media. But once you're out of hospital, a lot of these girls build up Instagram communities of other girls with anorexia out there, and, and they kind of all watch each other lose weight at home. So that, that is still a massive thing. Wow. I want to, before we move on to the, the bonus content, I, I do want to talk about your, your career. You, you became a journalist. You are an opinion writer. And I, I noticed something that you said earlier when you talked about your younger self. You, you said you were terrified of having an opinion that would upset people. <laughs> and, and yet here you are. Um, you, you're not afraid. Uh, you, you upset people a lot, uh, I do. as do I, in, 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 your, in your opinions. No, but I actually think this is fascinating because I was also, I, I was not an anorexic, although sometimes I think of myself as a, as a failed anorexic. <laughs> But I was also a, a real people pleaser. I I was I wanted everybody to like me. Mm-hmm. I wanted mm-hmm. to say the right thing. And at a certain point, I just went totally the other way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. in my work, I go out of my way to <laughs> upset people with my opinions. And I, I still don't know exactly why this juxtaposition is what it is. And I, I'm curious if you have thoughts about that. I think what I realized at some point in my 30s was that keeping my thoughts to myself, not trusting myself to make to, to say something um, and fearing other people's reactions was actually making me more unhappy than upsetting people. It just, I mean, you know, anorexia is a great lesson in that. But also I think just getting older and not being scared anymore is the main thing. And this is why I, I've I kind of love being a middle-aged woman, which I am right now. It's, there's so many, I've got so many middle-aged female friends who are kind of exactly the same. And I, I don't know if swearing is allowed on your podcast. Yes, please, Megan, yes, but, um, we just don't give a fuck like, is kind of how it feels. And I think there is a reason why so much of what, you know, certain people call the turf movement consists of middle-aged women is like, first of all, we know how biological sex has affected our life. And also we don't give a fuck about upsetting you know, some ridiculous gender activist out there. Like, it's, well, it's you're fun. in the UK. Yes. You, uh, I think Americans are still giving a few too many. Uh, well, America this. is such an, it, I find it fascinating to watch from abroad because, you know, I am, I am still, you know, I've got two citizenships, I have two nationalities and I go to America all the time. I, I lived in New York for a couple of years as an adult. It is fascinating to see how much more deranged it is about the gender issue than lovely sane Britain. And my personal feeling about that is it's a lot to do with the medical society, medical um, community, because here we have socialized healthcare. So, you know, the, the NHS is generally not, you know, kind of trying to convince people to have surgeries because mm. it costs the taxpayer money. Like we barely have enough money to heat our hospitals here at this point. Whereas in America, obviously, the American medical community is making an absolute ton of money from convincing people to have surgeries. And, you know, the uh, uh, Boston Hospital Children's Department, like they put up an advert I saw. And, you know, doctors are, you know, advertising on TikTok. Like there's a lot of money to be made from the gender movement and convincing children that their lives will be improved if they have plastic surgery, basically. And I think that's been a real big factor. That's true. And we also have the political right, which is this. So, so anything that is perceived as a conversation that could get weaponized by the people on on, on the right, the Republicans, uh, quote unquote, bigots, that makes 
people on the left very, very, very wary of, you know, expressing any sort of skepticism. There's an ability, there's an inability or sort of a lack of faith in people's ability to walk and chew gum at the same time. Totally. It's like a a lack of critical thinking. And what I find really, I mean, we have that a bit here, you know, the Tories are, you know, anti, um, you know, kind of pronouns or, you know, however you want to do it. And Mm. and the Labour Party is is kind of, has been really on the fence or quite, you know, pro the gender movement here, but it's, it's shifting a bit. But when people talk about conversion therapy, therapy, like how can they not see that so much of the gender movement is about converting, you yeah. know, effeminate little boys and butch little girls, you know, why not just let them be gay or lesbian? Like the lack of critical thinking, like that to me is the ultimate, you know, horrible evangelical conservative act to do to a to a, a child who may be gay as an adult or maybe is just a bit effeminate or butch. I just find it astonishing how people can't see that. I know, but I've also heard trans activists oh, I... refer to exploratory therapy as conversion therapy. Right. <laughs> because you're right. well, they, they truly believe that. They believe that they are trans or the other gender and that any sort of um, you know, thinking thinking more about it is tantamount to praying the gay away or something like that. And I think a lot of very well-meaning people still see it that way. Well, before we move on to the bonus, I want to ask you, when we see people, usually women, who are just profoundly anorexic, like not the not the not the drive-by, you know, very thin person, but I think we've all seen this person, like just the full-time career, profoundly anorexic. I mean, I remember there was a woman I would see in the supermarket in New York. She was probably in her 70s by now. I mean, an absolute skeleton. And it's like, wow, she has lived her whole life like this. And it's almost, there's something voyeuristic about it. It's like looking at a like a sideshow. Yeah, I know. It's like a, it's I mean that sounds very crude and no, no, I don't I mean it to be in a I'm not saying that in a cruel way, but it's striking when you see th- this kind of person. What can we assume is going through that that person's mind, especially like I see this woman in the supermarket and I often think what is she even doing in here? Like what did she come here for? Well, she's come around to look at food, you know. Um, I used to do that, walk around in supermarkets and look at all the food. Um, it's like going to a museum. Um, uh, not much is going through her mind because she's so starved. Her mind, her brain isn't functioning properly. Um, I used to go up to people sometimes, um, I, and, um, drop notes in their bag or, um, just say, you know, things can get better, but sometimes they, sometimes they liked it. Sometimes they really didn't. Wait, you, you would drop notes in their bag? Yeah, I did that one. There was a girl, there was a woman I was at in yoga class who would come to my yoga class every week. And she was obviously just really, really ill. And, um, I, I wrote a note once and I, and I put it in her bag just to say, look, you know, you don't know me, but you know, I've, I've been where you are and I just want you to know that life can get better. And, you know, if you need help, finding a doctor or anything, I can help you. And, you know, your life doesn't have to be just endured like this. And she never came back to the class. And I felt really bad about that because I think she, she felt really self-conscious and, you know, maybe a bit angry with me um, as mm-hmm. I would have been. But then another time I, I, I went up to somebody and I just said, look, you know, I, I understand what you're going through and I've been there and, you know, things can get better. They, they honestly can. You just have to, it's much better on this side than on the side you're on now. And she kind of ran away from me. It was in a shop. 
And then I went into a different shop and she came and found me and I said, thanks, but it's hard. You know, they're not thinking properly. So it's really hard to reach out to them. And with someone who's that old as well, I mean, also she might not have been that old is the other thing I'd say, Megan, like she might just mm. look 70. She might well have been 25 because once they're really, once you go below a certain weight, you just look like an old woman. You know, they don't want to, they generally don't want to be approached. I wouldn't have been, I'd have been horrified if someone came up to me and spoke to me. But are they proud of the fact that people are staring at them? Um, they are both, well, I mean, it's different for every person, but for me, I would have felt on the one hand, like, um, why is everyone staring at me? And another part of me thinking everyone's staring at me because they're, because I'm so thin. So it's both. It's always, it's both really, I think. Yeah. Oh, there, there, there's so much here and I feel like people listening are going to, there's, I, there's, much, much, much more to cover. But I guess I want to make sure like, because I probably a, peop- a lot of people listening are going through this with a family member or with a child, like, what would be your advice if somebody is going through this with their child? I know that there's no, every solution is different. But like, what would be something to avoid? And what would be something to sort of pursue more, so more my, actively? My number one advice is to get professional help. It's just too much for a mother to take on by herself. And it's usually the mother who's the caretaker. It's too much. You don't want your relationship with your daughter to just be about food. You don't want to be the food police. You want someone else to do that as quickly as possible. And the sooner you get outside professional help, the faster the recovery can be and, you know, the easier path it will be to recovery, hopefully. And I I very strongly believe that parents shouldn't just make their relationship with their child just about the anorexia. From my parents... They were advised by my last doctor, you know, you need to still live your life, you know, go on family holidays without her, you know, still do your, your book group, your, see your friends, all that kind of stuff. And they did. And I resented them enormously for, you know, I was like, you know, stuck in hospital and they were, you know, having holidays in Florida, but it reminded me that there was a world beyond anorexia. And that is really important for your daughter. All right. Well, Hadley. Thanks for speaking with me. I'm going to keep you uh, a little extra to talk about cultural criticism and being a a bad girl (laughs) as opposed to a a good girl. (laughs) Good girls is your, is your book. And yeah, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about Woody Allen. Cool. And other things. My, uh, my favorite form of self-destruction is, uh, talking about that subject. But anyway, uh, thank you so much. Congratulations on the book. And maybe we'll talk again sometime. Thanks, Megan. That was my conversation with journalist Hadley Freeman. Hadley grew up in New York and London. She's a staff writer for the Sunday Times and previously spent 22 years at The Guardian. Her newest book is Good Girls, a story and study of anorexia. Before that, she published House of Glass, which was published around the world and a bestseller. To hear the bonus portion of this conversation where we talk not only about Woody Allen, but a recent controversy regarding Judy Bloom, which Hadley was directly involved with, become a paying subscriber at the Substack, megandaum.substack.com. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.